Watson. Touchdown! With the 12th pick in the 2017 NFL Draft, the Houston Texans select Deshaun Watson. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 91 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and it's been quite the exciting week in Texas. As you heard by the introduction song and uh, Roger Goodell's announcement, the Houston Texans have a new quarterback, and that's Deshaun Watson, who was selected number 12 overall. And uh, we'll get into more of that and the implications that that has for the Houston Texans as Kevin and I sit down with John McLean of the Houston Chronicle here in just a few moments. And uh, John is a friend of the show. I think he's joined us probably about six or seven times. Uh, He's covered the NFL for about 40 years, and he provides some great analysis on the 2017 draft for uh, the Houston Texans. But one of the other big storylines that has happened this week has been uh, the uh, the layoffs at ESPN, of course, in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, nearly 100 writers were laid off, and I guess also uh, just personalities from ESPN were laid off. So uh, kind of shocking the sports world here. But uh, Hunter and Kevin are going to sit down with Brian Curtis, who is an editor at large with Ringer and covers the sports media world. Uh, so he'll join both Hunter and Kevin here in about 20 minutes. But uh, lastly, the Houston Astros just off to a, a monstrous start uh, in the AL West. Uh, finished the month of April with a 16 and nine record after taking two of three games against the Oakland Athletics, and uh, they have a big four-game series this week against the Rangers here in Houston at Minute Maid Park. And of course, the Rangers were 15 and four against the Astros in 2016, and 13 and six since 2015. And of course, 16 of those 38 games were decided by just one run with the Rangers taking 14 of those. So a lot of implications for the Astros early on. You've got to like what they've done, especially the way Dallas Keuchel has pitched. Uh, He's just been phenomenal, kind of reverting back to that 2015 Cy Young year uh, with, you know, his just production in each outing. But it's a very important series for the Astros, not necessarily for the standings and wins and losses, but I think long term for the season, uh, just kind of looking at the psyche of the team. uh, Is this a team that can kind of overcome those hurdles and those obstacles that they faced the last two seasons? Uh, We'll get into that and a little bit more as uh, Jake Kaplan, who is the Astros beat writer, uh, sits down in studio here with both Hunter and myself. And so we'll talk all things Astros, kind of break down the first month of the season, what we can expect as the season progresses. But we we have an extremely packed show today. That's John McClain, Brian Curtis from The Ringer, Jake Kaplan from The Houston Chronicle. So we're going to keep this introduction a little bit short. But uh, before we get into those interviews, I want to remind you that you can follow our work on social media. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And uh, in the last two weeks, I think it's been more than 22,000 of you have listened uh, to the podcast. So we definitely appreciate all the support that we have. And we encourage you uh, to follow us on our social media platforms and interact with this. Also, you can get in touch with us by leaving us a review on iTunes. Very simple. Just go there. Tell us what you like about the show. Give us show ideas. Uh, But we definitely have enjoyed the last few weeks and the caliber of guests that we are bringing you. So uh, let's go ahead and leave things off with uh, John McClain from the Houston Chronicle. And as mentioned, we've got a packed show on deck. So it's time to sit back, relax and be informed. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Of course, the NFL draft took place this past week, and uh, the Texans making a lot of surprising moves trading up in the first round to draft Deshaun Watson. And uh, we want to discuss the NFL draft on the show, and we couldn't think of any 
person better to discuss that than John McClain, who we've had on the show several times. And uh, John, you've covered the NFL for over 40 years. Uh, The last 15 years, it seems like the Texans have struggled uh, at the quarterback position. Uh, They move up to get Deshaun Watson this year. Did they make the right decision? Well, I thought Watson was the number one quarterback in the draft, and I uh, I watched him in those last two championship games, and I watched him play a few other games with Clemson. And when I saw what he did to Nick Saban's defense the last two years in the championship games, in which those defenses were loaded with high draft choices, and he just abused them. I don't know how anybody could have Mitchell Trubisky based on one year's starter uh, rated over Deshaun Watson is amazing. And it just goes to show you what they do in college has so little to do with where they get drafted. It's all about what they do in shorts and T-shirts, and that's one reason you see so many quarterbacks bomb out. And so I thought Watson, I think in my final mock draft, I had him going six to the Jets. So I had no idea that he would be available for the Texas to trade for. And then I was reminded in my first mock draft, first of eight, I had the Texans trading up with Cleveland and taking him, and I had forgotten about it. It seems like that was months (laughs) ago when it was only two months ago, and I did it just as kind of a joke since they had made the deal for Osweiler, never having any idea, especially based on Rick Smith's history. One trade up in ten drafts, one Mm -hmm. spot last year to get Will Fuller. And Smith's number one picks have been better than his his drafting in the first round has been better than anybody in the league. You go back and look, the first one of Moby Okoye started four years. He was never worth the tenth overall pick, but he was a starter. And when and Wade Phillips came in in 2011 to install a three four, he didn't think Okoye fit, so he was gone. But going back to Dwayne Brown in 08, all of those guys are starting, or in the case of Kevin Johnson, he's like a starter. So I did not think that that Rick Smith would trade up. I didn't think he would trade up that far. I thought at the minimum it might be a few spots. And when he made the move to get the pick, I knew it was going to be Watson because Trubisky and Mahomes were gone. They liked Patrick Mahomes a lot. And I think if Mahomes had been there, they would have done the same thing for him. But uh, I think it's a great deal. Uh, there's no rush. He's not going to start right away. May not start at all this year. People think I see all these national media types acting like he's going to start. He's not going to start unless both quarterbacks get hurt. He will be given time to not just adjust to the NFL, but to learn Bill O'Brien's system and the freedom they give the quarterback at the line of scrimmage is difficult for any quarterback, much less a rookie. Remember what Brandon Whedon said when he came here, learning this system compared to what I've been exposed to, that would have been Cleveland. Dallas is trying to learn Chinese backwards. (laughs) Well, you know, so reading the tea leaves, it's interesting, I think. Uh, Obviously, trading up is a radical move for Rick Smith. You mentioned there one time in 10 years. And then Dabo Sweeney's been kind of chattering a little bit, saying that there are some teams that are going to rue the day they uh, they let Watson fall to the Texans. So it seems like there are some indicators he could be really, really special. I've seen some character. Yeah, passing up Michael Jordan. (laughs) Exactly right. So, I mean, it's obviously he likes to gas his guys up. I, I wouldn't put too much stock in that and maybe take it with a grain of salt. But does he have you know, the capability to be truly special? Could he be one of those franchise-altering quarterbacks five, ten years down the road? They obviously believe he can, but they've made mistakes on quarterbacks before. The reason this franchise has struggled so much with quarterbacks 
it's simple. This is the first time they've drafted one in the first three rounds since 2003 when they took Dave Ragone, who was no good, better quarterbacks coach than a quarterback. And then the first time they took one in the first two rounds is David Carr in 2002. So when you don't address the position high in the draft, you're going to experience problems. Now, Matt Schaub's still the greatest quarterback they ever had. Matt had four really good years when he and Andre Johnson were right behind Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne as the best duo in the league. And so uh, then everybody tends to remember Matt's last year in 2013, which was a disaster. And then, of course, Osweiler, you couldn't call him a disaster. It was based on the money, but the fact that he was 8-6 and six as a starter and they did get to the playoffs and won a game almost in spite of him, but that didn't work out. Now, the worst thing they could do to Watson is try to force him into the lineup, which they won't do. Bad teams force young quarterbacks into the lineup, and they're doomed. And whether they can handle it or not largely depends on their their mental makeup. And then, um, so this team's trying to win the division again, and so that's why Watson will not play before Bill O'Brien believes he's ready but long term anybody watch what he accomplished in college against top competition he won more playoff games in college than Trubisky and Mahomes combined to beat ranked teams much less playoffs now maybe Trubisky and Mahomes end up in the Hall of Fame possible maybe Watson will bomb out usually when quarterbacks bomb out and they're always highly rated it's because of the team they go to. An in, impatient owner changes coaches, change system, change quarterback coaches, offensive coordinator. What they want is stability and the same system. And the teams that have that usually give their quarterbacks a chance. And and But there are instances where guys get hurt. I've heard people, well, Dak Prescott could play, so he could play too. Well, Dak Prescott was going to be third string behind Tony Romo and Kellen Moore. Then Moore goes down for the season in preseason, and Romo goes down for the season in the second game. And so he had to play, and then he had the NFL's best offensive line and best running back. And uh, Watson, whenever he plays, are savage. I'll tell you something, guys, I think so interesting. How many times do we see before the draft analysts on TV, on websites and newspapers, on talk shows saying he needs time to learn the system about quarterbacks. You've right. got to give him time to learn the system. Well, Tom Savage has been given time to learn the system, just like Aaron Rodgers was. I'm not saying he's going to be Aaron Rodgers, but I remember Aaron Rodgers told us before the Packer game this year, he said, I waited, watched and waited for three years. And then my first year, he said, we were terrible. Social media would have run me out of town today. And so Savage has has paid his dues. He's learned the system. He knows it inside and out. People around the country just can't understand why Tom Savage would start. And, well, they think about him from watching him behind the scenes and watching him in meeting rooms and practice field. And in the short time he got to play last year, that he deserves to be the starter. And what would be the perfect situation is Tom Savage plays really well and he and so well, they got to give him a new contract. Then you'd have him and Watson, and that would be a great problem to have 
a problem at this franchise. Never had one good one, much <laughs> less two. So I think it's interesting looking forecasting next season. As you mentioned, they're going to have Savage as the uh, as tabbed as the starter, and then uh, Whedon, I guess, would be the backup most likely. So Watson giving that sort of red shirt year to learn the system and so forth. I, I like that for his development. But Savage has had a history of injury issues. Uh, I would imagine that might be a problem. You had a, a division in which everyone else had an opportunity to draft and get better as well, and an entire offseason to do so. I, you know, how competitive are you likely to be in that division if if you're going to have to rely on Savage and possibly Whedon if Savage is hurt? Yeah, Whedon is the backup for sure. If Savage gets hurt, Brandon's starting. Brandon's 2-0 and is, star- is not a starter. He came off the bench to win in Indy, first time the franchise had won there, and then he won his only start. And they like Whedon a lot as a backup. So if, if Savage gets hurt, and considering he's been hurt every year, you got to think it's a good chance of that. But A.J. Boyer been hurt every year. And in a contract year, he stayed healthy. Now he's making $13.5 million a year. And so maybe Savage in the last year of his contract with a new wife and a new baby, this is such a great opportunity for him because, as you guys know, I bounced around in college. Now he's been on the bench for all, about three years except for two starts, and voila. There he is with a chance to make millions and millions of dollars, if not here, somewhere else. So it's it's a tremendous opportunity for him. And uh, But if he gets hurt and Whedon plays and Whedon gets hurt or say Whedon's terrible, which I don't think he would be, then Watson would play. If you're playing a rookie, in almost every instance, you're in trouble. Now, Ben Roethlisberger had to play as a rookie when Tommy Maddox got hurt. And he did really well. He had a great running game and a great defense. And what I like about what the Texans have done is drafting Deontay Foreman. Uh, in Bill O'Brien's three years with the Texans, they've run the ball more than any team in the league. That's not going to let up. Bill loves to run the football, throwback football in this division, because Fernet goes to, to uh, Jacksonville, and we all know he's a power back to pound it between the tackles. Tennessee already started the smash mouth approach last year when they signed Marco Murray and drafted Derrick Henry in the second round. The only team that hasn't adopted that yet is Indy and they probably should to take the heat off Andrew Luck. There's nothing like a great or and consistent and ball control running game to help a quarterback and keep a defense fresh. So there's no doubt in my mind Texans are going to run the ball like Crady in the addition of Foreman, a power back who ran a four four five at his pro day, weighing two thirty three, is going to help them tremendously. And I think the AFC South is going to be a throwback to the old AFC Central. Yeah, I I, I kind of like that. The, you know, the Deonta Foreman pick. I mean, he's a guy from Texas City, went to University of Texas. One of the questions that I do have from him is, you know, we look at the last three years with O'Brien, uh, you know, running his running backs nearly 1,500 times. And Foreman is a guy who had a very heavy workload at the University of Texas last season. Are there any concerns with his durability or is it just, you know, a nice mix to have uh, him and Lamar Miller on the field? He had a healthy workload one season. It's not like it was two or three. That's one reason he came out. And, you know, the only reason he got to play was because of injuries. So the Longhorns didn't know what they had. So I think if you average his carries over three years, that's not many carries. What you worry about is a player who's averaged about 30 carries for three years or even two years. So I don't see it being an issue. Plus, right now, he's not the starter. He'll come off the bench. He basically will play the uh, the uh, 
Alfred Blue Roll. They got a lot of backs right now. You know, they got Foreman and Blue behind Miller. Then they still have Akeem Hunt, who I've always liked. Tyler Irvin, fourth-round pick last year. Kenny Hilliard, seventh-round pick last year. All those guys are not going to make the team. They'd be lucky if four of them do. But I know this. They're going to run the ball a lot. Lamar Miller got a role he never had, which was a back who's not got a lot of carries. And he missed time. He was beat up. He missed a couple of games. He ended up four-yard average. Now, the key to all this, of course, is the offensive line. And they I don't think Julian Davenport, their fourth-round pick, is from Bucknell is going to be starting anytime soon. So I'm betting that Kendall Lamb, entering his third season as a former undrafted free agent, will begin the season as the right tackle. And Mike Devlin's a terrific coach. And getting back Nick Martin's like having an extra draft choice. And Jeff Allen, the right guard, who was a huge disappointment last season, he had an operation. They tell me he's been working over there like crazy. He's lost weight. So I'm thinking he probably came in out of shape after getting his big contract. He was injured, nicked up, didn't miss a lot of time. And so if he could come back at right guard and play anywhere near what they hoped he would when they signed him, and then Greg Mance is a possibility to move to guard because he played there three years in college, and he did a terrific job last season. Martin actually played guard some at Notre Dame, but they think Martin could be a pro Bowl center. So they had, and then getting Kyle Fuller from Baylor, who I've watched a lot, a three-year starter at center, but they think he can also play guard. Don't know if he'll, he'll probably end up on the practice squad, but they've got some numbers, but unfortunately for them, those numbers are in, are everywhere but right tackle. And that's Chris Clark. They don't want him starting again. Kendall Lamb has never started, and a rookie from Butnell. Yeah, it, to me, the offensive line is going to have to step up if the Texans want to be competitive this season. But uh, really quickly, one guy that we haven't discussed is the Texans' second-round pick, and that's Zach Cunningham from Vanderbilt. Uh, he was a guy that uh, I guess didn't expect uh, to be taken by the Texans. He didn't have a private workout. He didn't visit the Texans. So he was kind of shocked when he got that phone call on Friday night. What can you tell us about him? Zach Cunningham is from Alabama, and he started uh, the last year and a half. He's an underclassman, and I thought it was interesting. Most underclassmen who declare leave school and start working out for the combine, pro days, private workouts, the draft, he stayed in school, and I think he had a final on the day of the draft. And he is uh, he is really fast and quick, sideline to sideline, quiet. They got a lot of high-character guys. That's important to them. They like guys who've been team captains. You know, they don't take chances on guys who've been a problem. That's Bob McNair's philosophy. They want guys who've been conduct- con- I mean, productive and guys who have been consistent and guys who do have high characters. Cunningham played in a 3-4 in college. And so he'll eventually, I'm sure, Bernardrick McKinney will replace Brian Cushing when Brian's done, and then Cunningham would move into the weak side inside. But I talked to Vanderbilt people yesterday and this morning, and they told me that they, Cunningham has the speed to play outside. He's relentless. He's the most decorated player in Vanderbilt history. And that, as far as all of his accolades, led the SEC at tackles. And so he's a smart guy. It's a complicated system for linebackers. Took Whitney Merciless, who was already a veteran, 
a year to learn it, but he's got good coaching. But and I think he should start off being a really good special teams player, and, and he'll get some playing time because of his coverage ability. He can cover better than McKinney right now. So one narrative that we've heard consistently is O'Brien's uh, the QB whisperer. He's going to have to tie himself to a quarterback at some point, and that's going to be his guy, and that's ultimately what his legacy is going to be judged on. Or whatever. Have we found that guy? It's Deshaun Watson. He's going to have his year to uh, to learn the system, to kind of develop and grow. And then kind of in years two and three, is that ultimately what, uh, what Bill O'Brien's going to be judged on by McNair when we're talking about whether we're going to retain this guy as the head coach of the team going forward? It's the first time they've made a big move to get a quarterback. It's the first time they've had a – a big name. Even David Carr was not a big name. David, you know, David came from uh, Fresno State, so that wasn't like he'd beaten a lot of big teams or played in play in bowl games, and they didn't have playoffs then. But you know, he is the most dec- Watson is the most decorated draft choice they've ever had, and uh, it's going to be fun to watch him in practice. Be fun to watch him in preseason. Savage is running with the first team in camp for the first time ever, and he needs as many reps as he's going to get. Whedon's the one who's been around a while and and can probably uh, get by without having a lot of reps, but it's going to be fun. And uh, he's Watson said, I want to be coached hard, and that's a good thing because if you play for Bill O'Brien, you're like going to boot camp in the, in the Marines, so you better be ready. We've got one more question for you, John. It's kind of a two-parter. Uh, there, there was some concern, it seemed, on social media with the Texans uh, trading up to get Watson on Thursday night because, you know, they gave up their first-round pick for 2018. They don't have a second-round pick because of the Osweiler deal. Uh, when you're looking at the overall grade for this draft and kind of taking the first and second round of 2018 into consideration, what is your overall grade? To me, I think that if you give up a first and second round pick and you get your franchise quarterback, it was worth it. Well, first of all, I've never graded a draft on anything except the people selected. I don't grade New England on the players they traded for. Players they traded for were not wanted by their teams, so I base it just on this one. Next year's grade will come next year, and keep this in mind. They're going to have at least three compensatory picks next year, including a third-rounder, and uh, that'll help ease the pain of not having the first and second. Maybe they use some of those picks to trade into the second. And even more important, right now they have the fourth most cap room in the NFL, and they'll use a little. It won't cost a lot to get DeAndre Hopkins because the way they'll spread his signing bonus over the years of the contract, he'll take a low base salary. It won't eat up a lot. So they're going to roll over most of their money, and that will give them more cap money to spend than any time I can remember, including last year when they signed Osweiler, Lamar Miller, and Jeff uh, Allen. So they'll have a lot of cap money for free agency to make up for not having the first two picks, and they'll have a lot of extra picks because of players they lost in a compensatory formula. If you sign one, and you lose one, one you sign can cancel out the one you lost based on his salary and his performance. So that's one reason they haven't signed any players. But 10 days after the draft, all the guys who are unrestricted right now who figure into the compensatory formula, 10 days from the draft, they become street free agents, no longer subject to the compensatory formula. 
Kind of uh, exciting times here in Houston after the 2017 NFL Draft. Texans get their quarterback, and we'll see what happens as we head into OTAs and minicamp. But, of course, we've got John McClain on from the Houston Chronicle. And, uh, John, for our listeners that you know might not follow you on social media, uh, one, what is the best way that they can follow you on Twitter? And what do you have coming up on the Chronicle this week? That'd be McClain, M-C-C-L-A-I-N underscore on underscore NFL, McLean underscore on underscore NFL. We've had stories every day for two weeks. I'm doing a column in the Chronicle and on Cron.com, and it'll be on my Twitter account for Monday with former Oilers quarterback Warren Moon talking about Deshaun Watson, what can, can he expect in Houston, what can he expect with the Texans. Moon presented him his award as college football player of the year in, uh, at, the, at the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta and got to know him. So I think it's very interesting what Warren told me about Deshaun Watson coming to Houston. Well, we definitely look forward to seeing that. And uh, John McClain, it was great to have you on the show again. We appreciate it. Guys, my pleasure. Thank you very much as always. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Well, the ESPN layoffs, of course, one of the biggest stories this week. We've talked a little bit about it already, but I, you know, I'm not an expert, certainly. I wanted to bring in an expert. And Hunter, as it happens, you know one. Uh, introduce us. Yeah, we have Brian Curtis from TheRinger.com, a uh, writer and editor at large there who mostly focuses on media. He also happens to be a friend of mine that I befriended when we both were in New York City, and he's also a native Texan from Fort Worth. So, Brian, please feel free to uh, give the our audience a real Texas introduction to whatever the hell that would mean to you. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think, I think I've lost my accent over the years, so... It's not. It wouldn't even be believable. But I hope. Uh, I hope you guys have been taking care of the place while I've been away for twenty odd years. Like we were alluding to, obviously, that's been. It's been on a lot of people's minds, particularly since Hunter, you work in the industry. I sort of, you know, work in the industry as well for a newspaper, a media outlet. It's. It's been uh, kind of a heavy week with all the news of the ESPN layoffs. Brian Curtis, of course, you wrote um, the familiar lousiness of the ESPN layoffs, and I think the title's app. It does seem kind of cyclical, like it's just deja vu all over again. But, but obviously, I, I think first of all, you got some really good points in the articles. You also posed some really good questions, and you frustratingly did it right at the end of those bullet points, and then didn't go on to write entire articles about them so i kind of want to pin you down on some of this stuff but but the first one it's not necessarily the most important one but it's just chronologically the first in the article you talk about espn is it a liberal network people complain about it i kind of sort of hear those complaints on twitter and it seems like it's usually the loudest angriest voices i don't necessarily know how widespread it is so much as there are some malcontents that like to tweet about things like that is it really that much of an issue do people the average hypothetical average guy or man man or woman do they think about the politics of ESPN or whether they're left or right, does that really affect their viewing choices? I think it's, it's a really good question. So my, my, ta- my test case on this is that I subscribe to four different University of Texas message boards, and you know, which is my way of getting out of my quote-unquote elite coastal bubble. And whenever I get on those places, there is a thread seemingly every day saying, uh, damn liberal ESPN, did you see what they did this time? I mean, I mean, it, it is constant. Now, how much of that is organic and how much of that is whipped up by the likes of Clay Travis and other people who may or may not believe it but happen to be working at the competing cable sports network? I don't know. Um, but I think it's a thing, and I think it's out there. And I think to the question of is ESPN a liberal network, I would say the answer is basically yes, You know, in the same way that the New York Times is a liberal newspaper, for instance. Um, which is not to say that you know they are on there beating the drums about uh, single payer health care every day, but to say that they picked on a few things, you know whether it's gay rights, whether it's trans rights, whether it's you know you know player player various player issues within sports, 
you know, they sort of pick their spots a little bit, and they've generally hired people that are on one on one particular side of the aisle. doesn't affect my viewing habits at all, and I don't think it would really happen if it were conservative, as long as it had a lot of things I wanted to watch on it. But yeah, I, I assume there is some portion of the population. What I was trying to say in the article is, this is not why people were laid off. I don't believe that many people have abandoned ESPN because they find it uh, to be too liberal for their taste for them to result in 100 layoffs and, and $30 million in salary or whatever the figure was. Well, it's just like the NFL. You know, there were people complaining very loudly and said that it ruined their months, you know, that Colin Kaepernick was kneeling during the national anthem or sitting as he was originally, and then they never quit watching football at all. So I, I do agree. That's an important point to make that that's really not the reason for it. Some people, I think, are trumpeting this as a victory of, you know, conservatives. Like, we've got to get these liberal people out of here because we're not watching them. We're not supporting them anymore. I think I think you're right to point that out. That's not, that's not correct. But I guess I'm so far left that nothing major, no major outlet or organization seems that liberal to me. So it's interesting to hear that, that maybe that is a correct perception you know nationwide or whatever but another line that you had there other networks had viewers ESPN had fans I'd never heard that line before but I, you, you attribute it to someone else and I, I do like it I think it's a you know kind of pithy but but is that time over I mean is it, it sort of seems like we're moving towards a personality less right you're getting rid of all the personalities uh, a more bland sort of produced style of, of entertainment infotainment really is is the day of the the fan of ESPN gone yeah it, it belongs to Bob Lee who was who's been at ESPN since its founding year of 1979 so he probably has a, as good a perspective on this as anyone you know I think maybe what we could say is there are not fans of ESPN uh, or there are fewer fans of ESPN as a whole network, right? When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, you were a fan of the whole thing, right? You loved Dan and Keith doing SportsCenter, and you may have loved Chris Berman and, and, and the various people in there, but really you were a fan of the whole brand, right? Because it was all kind of one big crazy clubhouse. I think now people may say, I'm a fan of Jamil and Michael, right? Or uh, God, no God bless them. I'm a fan of Stephen A. Smith, right? <laughs> or First Take, or whatever. Or you know, or, or writers on the web. I like Pablo Torre. I like Mina Kimes. Like they write really good stuff. But I think we're getting to a point where you probably say that less about ESPN, the publication. And you know what? That's probably the way the media is going, right? I mean, I think we would say the same thing about newspapers. When I was growing up, I'd say I'm a fan of the Dallas Morning News sports section. It's great. Now, when I have this buffet of options before me. You know, I probably say, well, I like that one writer over there or that other writer over there, but then I read the guy in the Chronicle, too, and then I read, you know, the guys on the Ringer, too, and, you know, maybe that's just as much a, uh, you know, kind of a, an outcome of where we are in the media and the fragmented world we live in as much as what's happening at ESPN. Brian, what do you think specifically about Ethan Sherwood Strauss being let go? He seems like the type of guy yeah. who, frankly, would oh, represent, yeah. you know, like the future of where any media company would want to go. The guy does everything. He writes, he does radio, he does, uh, he's, on, uh, he's on television. He also is satirical. He's young. He's probably a relatively affordable. Like, how do we even explain that? And how does him being let go reflect wherever ESPN thinks it is going to go? You know, it's a great question. I think that was probably the most baffling uh, of any of the layoffs, just because he is a fully digital guy. And he is a guy, you know, who, who seemingly fits what the vision of the new ESPN is, right? Which is a little bit younger, a little bit cheaper, somebody who has lots of content, to use the dreaded C word, uh, who is covering what happens to be the most, you know, maybe the most popular sports team on the planet right now, right? At the beginning of the NBA playoffs. I mean, I, I just feel there's still something untold about that. I don't understand what it is. They have two guys covering the Warriors, so, you know, in theory, you know, there's still somebody on that beat, but 
you know, Ethan was funny because on the one hand, he was kind of a weird fit at ESPN. You know, as I wrote, he's almost kind of academic. He is not, you know, a guy who is breaking uh, NBA stories in the matter of Woj, right? He is not, you know, sources tell me that, you know, the Warriors are about to sign it. That's just not his thing. He's after bigger ideas than that. He's almost kind of like, you know, for people who, who you know, sort of have a, a bigger conception of basketball. You know, he's he's that guy. But on the other hand, he also writes a ton. And he's the guy writing a gamer, publishing it five minutes after the game ends, right? So clearly he was useful to them. So anyway, I think there's I, I think it requires more study and to me that's the that's the weirdest the weirdest one that came down at all. Yeah. And I, I think the, the C word that you hit on was interesting, not what I immediately thought of there, but this sort of got my attention. But did you did you link to the uh, the, the the press release from, from John Skipper or the John Skipper message to ESPN employees? I thought it was kind of interesting. I'll, I'll point out a couple things here. Basically, uh, in the press release or the message saying, like, sorry that you guys, you know, we have to part ways with you or whatever, and, and the tone, and a lot of people had issues with the tone of it too. But again, it links to this where they kind of share the vision. It's sort of a glowing uh, portrait of what they intended do in the future going forward and it says like in the second graph there our focus continues to be providing high quality distinctive content at any minute of the day on any screen which i thought was uh i'm i'm the type that gets like self-righteously upset about virtually anything so i understand that my reaction is always hyperbolic or whatever but that would infuriate me if i had been one of those people laid off because you look at first take you look at the other bevy of terrible programming that espn has put on over the years that that seems almost like um a bridge too far a slap in the face i think i what do you make of that well you know i mean on the one hand right the bad news is is really not the way the memos are worded. The bad news is what the memo says, right? Which is you're laid off, you know? So I think sometimes we, we, we and I took a little shot at it too in the piece, you know, but I think sometimes we worry about the semantics of these things a little too much. Uh, I do believe he, you know, to the extent, I don't know him well. I've talked to him a couple of times. I think he is, um, you know, somebody who does actually care about these things and is probably being churned by forces. I would just say, here's the thing. When, when, when we look at a specific culprit, and we say there's this real, you know, kind of push for all of us to say here is something I don't like about ESPN. Therefore, this is the reason for the layoffs. Right? Whether it's liberal politics, I saw somebody saying, well, it's because their obsession with Tim Tebow, which actually would be seemingly the opposite of an obsession with liberal politics. By the way, some people said Skip Bayless, some people said First Take, and I said there's just some you could we could play this game all right. How about becoming a, essentially a branded content arm of the Texas Longhorns, right, and paying a gazillion dollars for the Longhorns? network, right? How many jobs did that cost, you know, going down that road? You know, I just, so, you know, when we say, well, you pick this journalist instead of this journalist, I don't think it's quite ever that simple. And, you know, yeah, there are people we don't like on there, but sometimes the people we don't like make a lot of money and they hire the people we do like, you know, that's the way the media works. We sports pages even work a lot of the time. So, you know, I would just, I would just resist, you know, getting too simplistic with that uh, characterization. I have a highlights real question. So I, I don't really know what you know, you grew up on loving when it came to highlights, but so Kevin and I uh, are just a little bit younger than you. And one of the gripes that I really currently have is that the 23 and a half minute, basically, reel of highlights that is strung together for a 30 minute highlight show that would have been on ESPN News, say, maybe, you know, five to 10 years ago. Even that, as basic as it is, is completely gone, right? You know, it's all about the personalities driving the six or, or what have you. And I, it really upsets me because I hate having to watch a 15-second ad online to then see an eight-second clip that may or may not be the highlight I'm looking for. I don't want to look individually for highlights. I, like, I honestly don't want, you know, to curate my own highlights individually one at a time. I loved that I could just wake up 
turn on one of the seemingly dozens of ESPNs and I would guarantee myself uh, highlights that, you know, would be chosen for me, right? Like I would be informed by what I needed to know in that day. It is awful that that is completely gone from every stretch of television. There's no channels doing that. Is that something that bothers you too? Is it something that, you know, like, do you think that Kevin and I are probably on an island feeling that way? No, I don't, because I think we're in this weird technological moment, right, where we have judged that that has less cultural uh, currency and <laughs> actual and produces less actual currency than it did uh, previously. But there's still this wanting need for it, right? There's still this yearning to say, well, no, 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 wait, let's not put everything on Twitter because then I just don't, I, I'm not going to actually know what happened on the night in sports. But I think we're sort of caught in that moment, right? I mean, I think you could have said the same, you, you could have made a metaphorical connection with newspapers at some point. No, 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 I still want my sports page. And I, by the way, still actually feel that way. Somebody gets two newspapers at the house here. So don't just throw this all into the digital realm so I can't pick up a thing in the morning and immediately figure out, okay, here are the top stories, at least locally for me here in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, I do feel that way. And by the way, you say it's all focused on personality. ESPN was always personality, right? ESPN begot, became famous because Chris Berman was doing highlights. It was never headline news, right? It became famous because Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick were doing highlights, and Stuart Scott later, and Kenny Mayne, and, and, and Craig Kilborn, right? It was always personality. But it was personality that was you, you know, driving what was essentially a news product. Right. And now I think we see that personality get detached a little bit from that. And it's sort of personality for personality's sake. So, and again, I'll, I'll refer back to you and, you know, <laughs> interesting concern to have during this time, Hunter, I think. But uh, but my mind, of course, with with the, the industry, the media, the other business and so forth, where is this going? Uh, they have that content strategy laid out, whether or not it's successful. We'll see. I guess the only time will tell. But but from your perspective, I mean, you study these things. You're, you're an expert. That's why we called you on here to ask you about it. What is a company or an outlet or maybe even an individual. You know, I know many of our listeners are kind of like me, sort of young journalists uh, who are still fairly fresh in this business. And it's kind of disheartening sometimes to see the things that go on within it at places that you would think are successful or are sort of pillars of, you know, of the industry. What is What does an organization or an individual need to do to be successful, to be engaging and to be profitable, more importantly? That's the number one question in my inbox. And I always tell them, first of all, Number one, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to guess. I mean, I, I think finding your niche in this weird world we're in is, is absolutely, you know, what makes you distinct, right? Uh, I think find, you know, a lot of ways it's probably a mixture of new school and old school things, right? It's ability to write quickly. It's ability to churn out. There's the C word again, content. Um, but it's also an ability to do it in an interesting way that makes you stand out. You know, I mean, it's, you know, what, what, is, what is your literary voice, right? What are you bringing to this? I mean, the cool part, I think, of this world now is that you can be hyper-focused on one thing and actually make a living doing that. When you mentioned me, sports media, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know that I could have carved out a, something like a magazine writing career on, based on sports media 10, 15 years ago. I mean, everyone said, really, is it that important? But now you can, right? Some people, it may be the intersection of sports and politics. Some people, it may be, you know, very, very, uh, you know, formerly absurdly nerdy basketball analytics that are sort of mainstream now, right? Some of it, it may be long-form Wright Thompson-esque storytelling. So I think the good news is if you go down one of those rabbit holes and you're good at it, uh, you've got a pretty good chance of being found and a pretty good chance of doing exactly what you want to do rather than, you know, what a mainstream uh, news, news organization sort of wants you to do. Uh, that would be my blue sky. Otherwise, uh, you know, it's, uh, you're on your own. It's Lord of the Flies out here. Well, 
uh, you know, with the idea of being on your own, ESPN is such a monolith and it really has for such a long time lived in its own space. Um, there are more competitors now. We know the cable cutting issue. What do you think ESPN does going forward? Will they adjust? Can they adjust? In a way, they've already adjusted. You know, I mean, there was a very good piece on, on Deadspin this week saying, you know, ES, you know, reminding us, ESPN is still a very profitable company, right? And a lot of what we saw this week was about making a number that Disney wants, you know, and sort of, you know, not, it wasn't about, you know, running company. They, 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 they have their own people to answer to. So I think in a way, you know, if you look at it, they've already really adjusted. They're adjusting away from the sports center model, uh, which is all highlights all the time. They are adjusting on the web. They're probably kind of contracting a little bit from uh, the kind of model they had a couple of years ago where they said, wait a second, we can replace every single local sports section in the world by having ESPN Houston, ESPN Dallas, everything else, right? We see them withdrawing a little bit from that. You know, I think it's probably a smaller network it's probably a little more modest in its ambitions in a certain it's going to it's still going to take over the world but not going to take over everything in the world <laughs> it'll leave a few things for the rest of us to write about but yeah you know i i, I think they'll adjust they're very smart people um you know this is not a these are not dumb people right these are these are smart people who figured it out for a lot of years and i assume they'll i assume they'll figure this out too we will see well, Brian, I got to say, man, I always listen back to the interviews just because I, you know, just putting the sound together and so forth. This one I'm really looking forward to. Very, very dense and, and, and weighty stuff and stuff I've been pondering, uh, you know, ever since Wednesday, ever since the news kind of came out and even longer since I've decided I wanted to be a journalist for whatever reason. I felt um, I had to pursue that. But, you know, obviously, thank you for coming on. You're from The Ringer. We love guys from The Ringer. We've had Chase Serrano on before. We've had Jason Concepcion on. We, we think you guys do really quality work. We really enjoy what you do over there. Um, obviously, if our listeners haven't already heard of you and the Ringer organization, we encourage them to follow you. How can they find you on social media and consume uh, all of the wonderful discussions you have about the media? Well, thank you very much for saying that. And thanks for having me on. And when you listen back, I hope you don't wince when you hear the word content. That's my only that's my only wish when you listen back to this interview. You can find me on Twitter at, at Brian Curtis. It's Brian with a Y. Thanks to my mom for uh, inserting that and making me spell my name out loud to everyone I would meet in, over the course of my life. And then, you know, at the uh, theringer.com, of course. We're on there, podcasts, uh, occasionally do podcasts on the uh, network there, but uh, mostly the, the old-fashioned written word, boys. I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and I think that probably, because you guys produce so many of them, I think probably 40% of what I listen to is, is somehow Ringer branded, so it's always very, very good. But uh, I think uh, Hunter's telling me to plug something. Hunter, why don't you just jump in and say it, buddy? Yeah, sorry about that, Kevin. No, I wanted to say that listeners actually really check out Brian's podcast on the Ringer Network uh, that's called On the Media. Uh, if you want to learn more about his takes on the media. And also, he came out with a great episode this week about Trump in the age of sports. Uh, excuse me, st- excuse me, uh, sports in the age of Trump, right, Brian? <laughs> if only it were Trump in the age of sports, yeah, but sports in the age of Trump, that's right. I mean, either way, it's a bad direction. <laughs> Thanks again, Brian, for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. All right, so we just talked about the ESPN layoffs. We talked about the NFL draft, but let's talk a little bit about Astros. And so, of course, we've got uh, two two guys who cover the Astros here in studio. We've got Jake M. Kaplan on Twitter. Jake Kaplan, thanks for joining us again for the fourth time. And, of course, Hunter Atkins at Hunter Atkins 35. And, uh, Jake, really quickly, uh, you own, like, a ridiculous amount of, I guess, T-shirts for different sports teams. So I've got to ask, you, you, just, you just told me before we started recording – 
Do you've got a Cavs jersey, a Warriors jersey? Are you just trying to like potentially pick all of the NBA winners so you can come out ahead, or or what does that look like? So, uh, jersey is strong. They're more like t-shirts. eight dollar t shirts because I like cheap t shirts. Uh, and if you're going to buy a cheap t shirt, it might as well be uh, one that you know has something cool on it. So when we were in Cleveland last week, I did buy a, a the Land t shirt. Uh, I bought a Warriors shirt when we were in Oakland a couple weeks ago, and I have Hunter is shaking his head. Yeah, that you could, first of all oh, don't mostly, don't don't mis, don't mislead the audience into thinking that these are cheap T-shirts. The Warriors shirt was eight dollars. Where? Show me the receipt. At Trump, Old show me your Navy. tax return. At Old Navy. <laughs> so J, so Jay Kaplan, he's on the road. He's got time on his hands. He goes to an Old Navy in the Bay. Well, I needed polos, and then I saw a shirt by the counter. I said, Ooh, that looks nice. You needed polos. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I have a few shirts and, um, no rocket shirts. Ladies, if you're listening. (laughs) All right. Well, we need to get your rocket shirt because rockets play the Spurs this weekend. Uh, we, we, uh, when we had the bonus episode the other night, we unanimously predicted that the, uh, rockets would lose, uh, in the playoffs to the Spurs. You can add me to that too. What is the series? Is it four games, five games, six? Uh, go six. Okay. Go six. We're pivoting. We're going right to the NBA. Right yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, you introduce us as the Astros. That's what the, we're giving the people what they want. Yeah, people, yeah. people want to know Rockets. People want to know Also, about, first game is Monday. Right? Yeah, Monday night yeah. at, I couldn't tell you what time, probably like 8.30. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, the Astros are kind of flying under the radar right now in the city of Houston. What uh, else is new? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, hottest team in the American League West, uh, you know, Came from behind again on Friday night. This team's been very resilient. A few weeks ago, we, we talked on the show about whether or not you could judge a lot from the first 12 games of the season. We're about a month through the season. Astros, I think, are maybe playing beyond, maybe slightly through expectations. The offense looks good. Hasn't clicked on all cylinders. I'm, I'm kind of curious from both of your perspectives. Can we judge the Astros right now after one month of a season, or is it still too early? I usually like to think of six weeks as like the first real sample size where you can make true judgments. But if, I mean, this is what we have to go on, so we're going to judge them on twenty-two games. So, uh, yeah, they've been pretty good. Um, you know, their lineup, even though it hasn't clicked in all cylinders, has come back on several occasions from five or four runs down, and they're relentless. With you know, they don't have any easy outs in there. Um, even on the days when a guy is one of the regulars sitting, they've they've managed to find a way. So. I think their pitching still something to watch. I mean, Dallas Keuchel's been right. been best case scenario for the Astros. Really, I was uh, I've been impressed and through five starts. But you know, the back end of the rotation has been a little up and down. Um, Musgrove, Fires, even Morton, um, and McCullers on the road has struggled. So yeah, and kind of on that McCullers, it's really weird if you look at his like his splits. He is phenomenal at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, just over the last two three years in his career. But on the road, he doesn't put up those numbers. And, and to me, that's kind of confusing because Minute Maid Park is not a pitcher-friendly stadium. Right. So h- how is it that he's able to just, I don't know, get in the zone at the juice box? I have no idea. It really doesn't make any sense. Morning yeah. sex? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> he didn't uh, have an explanation for it. AJ Hinch didn't have an explanation for it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just one of those fluky things that, for whatever reason, he's, he's bad on the road, really good at home. Yeah, well, it, it's good for the Astros if he can uh, continue to pitch that well and if he can find his groove on the road. But uh, one of the guys that's really impressed me so far this season is Aoki. And, you know, just what he's done at the bottom of the lineup. Uh, he, he's a guy that, coming into the season, I thought was probably going to be, you know, maybe your fourth outfielder. But he seemed to, 
I don't know, if you look at the stats, the OPS in the nine hole for the Astros has just been phenomenal. Outside of Aoki, who is somebody that is kind of surprising you or, you know, kind of making you take a second look this season? For me, it's Yulieski Gurriel. I mean, once he started, what, two for 21? And I was like, you know, you're starting to hear from fans going, where's A.J. Reed? You know, what, what are they going to do about first base? And uh, I think Fangrass even did a story. The Astros have reason to worry about Gurriel. And he's been their best hitter since then. Um, I don't know, Hunter, you covered the game last night. What's his batting average up to? Like 347. 47. He's got five or six doubles in that span, a couple home runs. So he's, I mean, he's moved up the lineup to the, the six hole, you know, pushing Bregman down to seven and eight. So I think that he's played good defense too. I think he's been uh, the biggest surprise uh, out, of, out of the position players for sure. I think Jake is going to know who I'm probably going to pick because I was really, really, really down on this signing. I didn't really get it at the time. Reddick. Josh Reddick has been yeah. awesome. Uh, I think that I certainly didn't understand his capabilities in every aspect of the game. Right, like I, I just always thought of him as a low batting average guy. He had one spe- spectacular year in uh, in Oakland, but he's excellent, and he he really fits in the number two hole, which I thought also was kind of odd for an odd choice when uh, when AJ put him there. But he's he's been incredible. I I I I didn't really think about how his energy works with this group either. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he. He's got. He's intense. He's intense, but but not in a way that is uncomfortable, right? It doesn't like his intensity is admirable. It's like it's I, like so in my in my story that I uh, I covered the game last night on Friday, I wrote that you know he plays the way that every fan imagines like he would play, yeah, like a fan would play, um, and it just it just weaves so nicely into like the whole energetic group, right? Yeah, and he he wears his emotion on his sleeve or, or whatever, however that cliche goes. I was just about to say, I can't believe you <laughs> use that cliche. Uh, but like even the other night, you know, in Cleveland, he during the first inning he was playing center field with Springer out, and he he missed two catches. One he probably should have had. The other, you know, Marisnik and Springer probably get, but I, it's one of those where you probably don't expect Reddick to get to. And he was pissed that he didn't get both of them. He you know, blamed himself after the game and. I think he dropped a fly ball a night later, uh, a night later too. So, um, but he, you can tell after he makes a play like that that he's, you know, extremely critical of himself and self then, accountable. Yeah, yeah, and he's then, candid. Yeah. He's, he's great. I mean, he. he I, I wish I had a better way to articulate the way, like how his energy matches and weaves in with this group. But, but you look, Jake. You've been around them so much more than I have. This this group of the core plus. Reddick plus like even a guy like Gaddis and I'm trying trying to think who else just like has the fun energy. Um, I think you know, the Springer's got to be oh in the bullpen. Well, I, no, I I just think that like all over the team, th- this team has a very clear identity. I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? right? And, and and we talk about how young they are. Even the guys that I wouldn't consider young, right? Some of the new signings, they just they they have clicked so nicely with the vibe of the team, right? Yeah. They have they very clearly have fun, whether it's like. The hilariously loud, obnoxious music that plays every single time media come into the locker room because Springer has it just cranked up all the way. Yeah, I mean, um, it's been that way for a couple of years, but when you get off to a good start, it, it shows even more. That's fair enough. But I, I think I think Bregman is also a big part of this. Like, I don't know how much t- you pay attention to Jake. I don't know how much you pay attention when you're in the locker room to, like, the chatter that goes on and the kind of vibes that are being exchanged. But he is silently, like, a little bit of a social ringleader there. For a guy who's 22? How old is he? He's 23. 23. So he's 23 years old. He organizes some huge-ass like birthday party 
for everybody to come to. Every single person was invited, right? And I guess if you're a bonus baby, maybe you're obligated to, but <laughs> I'm sure a lot of those guys don't. So he's really fun. He's very funny. He's constantly being ragged on by these guys and absorbing it. Like, and I just think that for, you know, like, let's say instead of him, it was like Bryce Harper or something. I could never see. Oh, no way. Yeah, he's, I could he's never see. He's got like see. a polarizing personality. Well, right. So it's that like from the youngest person on the team to, to one of the oldest in like, you know, a guy like McCann, for instance, they are BSing all the time. It's just, it's a really good, good vibes. And yeah, you're right. Winning is, is yeah. They go on a five game losing streak. It won't be good vibes. So <laughs> yeah. uh, winning kind of breeds that. But they definitely have a, an energetic group with a good, seemingly a good mix of young and and old. So what about the old guy on the team, Beltran? I mean, he oh, yeah. you know it's a second stint with Houston. How is he kind of meshing? Because to me, I, I look at him as kind of like the elder statesman and not you know that young energetic person and you know like a Springer, a Bregman, or you know as you guys had just alluded to, Reddick. How does he fit within that clubhouse? He's beloved. Those guys, those guys love him. You know, you think about the kind of special relationship he has with uh, Correa, right? Whether it's because of their Puerto Rican heritage, playing together in the World Baseball Classic. Like Correa was a guy who, when Correa was like growing up and a teenager, right? He idolizes Beltran, watches him on television and stuff. And I was, I was actually talking to Beltran about this yesterday. He, he's rather in the public eye, very quiet. Right, like we'd never think of him for sound bites or whatever. He's, but he's very like soulful and almost sentimental when you talk to him about the transition he's made, maybe halfway through his career, into very with a very focused effort and very deliberately being a role model, like being a mentor. And he's he has like a softness to him, and I think that really comes from the genuinely great close relationships he has, mostly with the Latin ball players, like across the MLB. He still to this day keeps in touch with all the guys from the Rangers. He told me yesterday despite only playing there for two months last year. So um, he, he's not going to be the guy that's going like, you know, like to dance around in his jockstrap or whatever, but he, um, he, he definitely knows how to hang with these guys. How has he compared it to his stint back in 2004? He hasn't, I mean, every, it's so different, right? It's such a different part of his career. He was kind of an under-the-radar rising star in 2004 when they acquired him because he'd played in Kansas City, right? Um, which wasn't really as competitive um so it's so different he's had such a different part of his career but it's it it's cool to see how the players gravitate toward him even like day one in spring training um and honestly we, we talk about Correa a lot because of the Puerto Rican connection but I see Jose Altuve by talking to Beltran as much as anyone if not more than anyone uh which you know Altuve is a guy who finished third in MVP voting last year uh had a breakout year he's made four four all-star teams but he's still trying to wants more and is, is picking Beltron's brain constantly. Um, you know, after games, he's constantly sitting with them to while they eat their post-game meal and, and learning more, it seems like. So uh, it's been interesting. And, you know, I keep hearing behind the scenes that Beltron's even a little bit of a comedian when, when the media's not in there. And uh, To what degree, Jake? You know, I just... I, he's funny, apparently. He's not... I mean, I've heard... Hunter is shaking his head, like, in shock. <laughs> well, I, you know, like... He's 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 had a few good one-liners in in media scrums, usually on the road, when there's less of the, you know, the local TV. But uh, I mean, I've laughed at a few of his jokes. But I, I keep hearing that he's you know a guy who, while it doesn't, it seems like he's always super serious and all that. He's he's got some good one-liners. Yeah, and a softness, like a tenderness. I, I, maybe that's a, you know it's a word that we really don't get to use much in sports ever, right? Like we we almost like never want to use that because it's associated with weakness or something. But he he really has like 
as he's gotten older, as he's played for so many teams now with so many different groups, there's like a reverence that he garners from other players, and he and he takes it um, with a lot. Like it feels very meaningful to him, which is sweet. You know what I mean? So he's cool. He's fun. Yeah, it's, and the, like I was talking to Alex Cora about him over the weekend in Tampa, <clears throat> leading up to Beltron's 40th birthday on Monday, and he said, like sometimes I have to remind him to look out for himself because he's so you know focused on helping Altuve, helping Correa, helping Marwin Gonzalez, whoever it is. Uh, that, he, that he has to be reminded, hey, like we signed you to to produce too, not just to be a mentor to everyone else. Can we can we dive into the AL West a little bit? You know, Jake, sure. you're going to know a lot more than than I will about this, but you you, I, th- I feel like it's in in fairness to, to being realistic about this team, Austin, right? Like you said, you know, can we judge this team a month in? Let's keep in mind they're beating up on teams that are playing you know pretty poorly that are, that are just worse than them, right? And they're about to play the Rangers next week, right. which every fan is thinking, you know, like, there's a big rivalry, yada yada yada. The Rangers have and they've struggled shit. especially with the bullpen. I mean, just closing out games and just. Have not looked good. I mean, granted, they're ten and thirteen, sitting in. No, they, they also can't hit fifth place. Right, Ranger, right. Exactly. A team that is known typically for having prolific offenses, they can't hit. They're they're, they're hitting poorly. So, I, I was going to transition into this idea that look, the Rangers have owned the Astros the last two years. Right, they've outscored them two hundred runs to one hundred fifty runs, and that's a massive differential. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, yeah, they kick their butts and. Um, and now the Rangers are on the, the way down, the Astros are on the way up. But th- this whole division is, is down, right? Yeah, it's kind of a mess right now. Um, you look at it, like the Angels have been super streaky. They, they lose five straight. They win six straight. And I think they're on another streak of winning now. Um, Garrett Richards is out, their ace. Uh, no one knows when he's going to be back. Uh, the Mariners have been a disappointment so far, although even they had a big uh, uh, somewhat – Long winning streak at some point, uh, I believe. So yeah, the Rangers have have not played too well. Do They're you see anybody challenging the Astros? <clears throat> let me let me say, not in the like forget. We, there's no reason for us to look towards September, but like which one of these teams do you think Jake maybe is having a little bit of bad luck? Maybe whether it's because of injuries or scheduling. I think the Rangers will it'll even out, and the Rangers will finish. You know, as that team that, Why? that challenges them. I think they haven't had Adrian Beltre yet. They haven't had. Um, you know their bullpen has been a mess. Their Sam Dyson's just getting back after <clears throat> an injury, and and obviously mass struggles. Um, you know they'll, they'll make moves because they know their window is one or two years with with Darvish, uh, Cummins, Hamels. Hamels, and Beltre, and and you know an older group, uh, somewhat. So I think I mean just their experience. They've been in the playoffs the last two years. They're they have a lot of good players. So I, I think they'll end up being the team that. Is the and you know the Astros haven't proven they can beat the Rangers either. I was, I was gonna say it'll be interesting to see how the series begins next week. When with, I say series, with no I mean, Keuchel in the series too because he's going Sunday. Yeah. Um, so the Rangers get the, the McCullers, who's obviously a really tough matchup at home. But you know the other three, uh, I'm not sure who the Rangers are throwing out yet. Well, and also I was thinking you know like I have a very like Bill Simsian kind of take, which is you know when you are the team that knows you can beat. And always, like, basically consistently have beaten this exact rival so many times. That does have an effect, right? So if the Rangers, they're playing poorly right now, right? We think that they're not, they're, they're less talented or whatever, right? You still have to, if you're the Astros, you have to overcome history. 
right? the mental aspect. Yeah, it's like the Yankees always owning the Red Sox for that long time until, of course, it totally flipped. But it's like no matter what, you know, Astros fans in the back of their minds are going to have that, you know, disgruntlement and and concern and anxiety that, well. So the, we la- so the last two years, uh, the Astros have been young and they have blown leads. I think two years ago they blew a lot of leads, uh, especially on the road in Arlington last year. They just, you know, look outmatched, outclassed by the Rangers. Do you think adding a veteran like Beltran, you know, I don't know, maybe calms this team's nerves a little bit? I think <clears throat> adding Beltran's bat and taking Beltran's bat away from them is a big deal. Um, I think I think the veterans in general will help in that respect. Reddick has played against the Rangers a lot. I'm not sure how he's hit against them per se, but he's he's played against them on the other side with the A's. Uh, McCann, you know, they have... It's a different. It's uh, while their core is the same, their roster is very different than the one the Rangers saw last year. Um, you know, I, I think this will be a big series in setting the tone for the the season series, uh, so to speak. Like if, but if the Astros come out and win three out of four, I think it changes the narrative a little bit. Um, I also I also think it'll it'll breed confidence in whichever team comes out. Sure, having, having, d- depending on what the scores are and how the games right, go, but right. but like. If, let's say the Rangers take two or three, and let's say it's four game series. Excuse me, my apologies. <laughs> let's say they. Take he, two. He's factoring in a you know a rain out with the uh, with no. the roof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. All right. Well, so let's say they win three or four, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, then it, it which, just continues the narrative of the last two years. Yeah, and and suddenly you know think about confidence. Uh, man, huge blow of confidence to the Astros, and it and it really. Completely resettles or uh, reconfigures this argument about the AL West. That right, and if you're the Astros and you stomp the Rangers in this series, that's going to feel really, really definitive. Kind of build that separation. Can we talk about Alex Bregman a little bit too? By the way, I feel like we we haven't talked about this guy much in terms of his play. Yeah, absolutely. So Bregman, uh, you know, he's hitting about 247 on the season. About Um, that sounds pretty exact. It's it's exact. (laughs) I've got the stats in front of me. Uh, So like how that T-shirt was about eight (laughs) dollars. It was eight twenty. Sorry. Okay, so now we're talking absolutes. So that that that's good. Uh, but Bregman, um, we had mentioned before the season started that there were high expectations for him, but there wasn't necessarily significant pressure because of you know just the roster that you had. You know, you've got guys like Altuve, Correa, who Correa is also struggling this year in terms of batting average. Uh, what are your impressions of Bregman through his first full month on the major league roster? Sitting way too many ground balls and not enough in the air, um, and I know that's something he's he's working on to fix. Uh, that was the big transformation he made last year. That you know vaulted. He wasn't supposed to make the major leagues last year. He started in Double A. It was supposed to be maybe he comes up in September to, for a first little taste, but probably the year after. But he came out hitting home run after home run in Double A AA and Triple A and, and forced his way onto the team and kept hitting. Once he was with the Astros, he, I think he had eight home runs in a couple months. But he was also a guy who started slow. I think he was, what, like one for 31, one for 32? Yeah, once he got to the like Astros, right. yeah. But he after that start, from the, the end of that slump to the end of the season, he was their best hitter, I think. Um, not named Altuve. So do we see that potentially happening this season? Is he a guy that maybe just starts I mean, slow? Or is he kind of struggling... <laughs> As pitchers are starting to adjust and you know look at film on him, I think I don't think it's it's not like he's hitting two forty seven. It's not like he's not hitting at all. Right. It's not like he's one for thirty seven or whatever it was. But I think he's working through some uh, mechanical things with his swing, and and once he fixes it, I think he'll be fine. He's been, he's been incredibly clutch, by the way. 
He's his average with runners in scoring position is five hundred. Yeah, he's betting five hundred this year with runners in scoring position, and when he's got a runner on third, with I think it's a runner on third with less than two. I'm sorry, with two outs, runner on third with two outs. He's driven that guy in five out of seven times. That's insane. It is insane. Yeah. He's so what and, and where I'll leave with that is you talk about whatever his uh, the mechanical changes he's got to make but his approach to the plate seems to be really good like mm-hmm. last night he gets a uh, pretty critical sack fly and to make the score six that's to four a, that's a good sign for him because he's hitting the ball in the air and it was an 0-2 count you know what i mean so, so he's he, battling he he, he puts a really good at bat i mean some of yeah his that's, what, that's 10 what 12 say. pitches like. so so at some point it, it's gonna yeah like i i i brought him up because i just figure astros fans are curious to see like is he gonna turn around like, undoubtedly i do think he's gonna turn around i don't know if that means he's gonna and hit. he's young as well so we, we have to keep that in mind he's <clears> 22 <throat> years old uh he's two years removed from college yeah i think we'll in july when all-star break you sit down and look at the stats he'll be right where you expected him to be so i i'm kind of curious world baseball classic happened he gets on the team usa roster but he doesn't get a lot of at bats does that kind of I don't know. Is that maybe a cause for him hitting too many ground balls that he wasn't able to work on mechanics during spring training because he was sitting on the bench and not necessarily getting live at bats? I don't know if that's why. Uh, I think pe- pe- batters just go through so many different versions of their swing throughout a given year and work through things that we never even notice or hear about. But I, I think that definitely affected his spring training preparation. I mean, he went two and a half weeks without. Uh, you know, more than what six live at bats. Um, I mean, he was taking BP every day and all that, but it's not. It doesn't substitute for the the time you're going to see in in you know facing live hitting. So I I, I think that's kind of like I think it affected him a little bit in spring training and maybe the first week of the season. Um, but I think once you get a week of live pitching in, that's kind of out the window. Yeah, I, I, I'm confident in Bregman. I I, I think he's a He's got a phenomenal glove as well at, at third base. Uh, he, he's made some great plays this season. Uh, you know, even at shortstop in the World Baseball Classic, he was making great plays when he was in the game. Uh, w- one of the things that I've been kind of thrilled about for the Astros this season is at the catcher position. I mean, last year we saw Castro kind of struggle at the plate. I mean, the last few years that he was with the Astros, he struggled at the plate. But this year you're getting production from Evan Gaddis, who's hitting 327, Brian McCann hitting 279. How important is that that there's not really an easy out one through nine in this Astros lineup. It's tough for the opposing pitchers. Is you know McCann has really impressed me. To be honest with you, he hit what two thirty last year at the Yankees and uh, got really pull happy his last couple of years there with the short porch in Yankee Stadium. And now he's he's hitting it up to all fields a little bit more. And he's walked. I think he has more walks than strikeouts, or he did at least you know a couple of days ago. Um, so he and he's been uh, you know providing a, a clutch home run or a double here and there. Um, so I, he's been, and it seems like the pitchers like throwing to him too. Um, so. And c- combined, he and Gaddis have twenty four RBIs. I think twenty three or twenty four RBIs combined between the yeah, two. Twenty four, yeah. Which is, that's, I don't, you, Jake, you tell me, but like when you when a team wants to play two catchers as much as Hinch likes to play these two guys, like how often do the do teams have options um, like this, right? How often do teams ever have the options of two guys that can combine for? What, what, I don't, I'm, They're gonna have what fifty home runs combined. I was gonna say yeah. like and and well over a hundred RBIs to combine. What yes. do you think? Yeah, yeah. and Gaddis has been their home run and RBI or right. home run leader the last two years. RBI leader two years ago. He's gonna his at bats will wane a little bit compared to the first two years, but um, yeah, I mean, I mean, 
It's rare for a team to have even one of those guys. Sure. Well, I mean, that's huge because you look at Jason Castro this year. Currently, he's batting 212. I mean, last year, he was hovering around the 200 mark the entire season. He would occasionally come through with, you know, a clutch base hit in there, here and there. But he, he was a guy that was more there for the pitchers, you know, great Which at calling huge. games. I mean, let's not minimize the, the defense. Um, how, how do McCann and Gaddis compare to, you know, someone like a defensive catcher like Castro? I think McCann's pretty solid defensively and, and really good with working with the pitchers and challenging uh, Dallas Keuchel to throw this pitch in this count and, and, and that kind of thing. Gaddis uh, is not as good defensively. He's got a great arm, but receiving on the on, by the knees on the corners of the strike zone, he's still got some work to do. Um, so, yeah, I think Castro's a, a, I mean, he was the reason he got his big contract or one of the big reasons was his pitch framing and how he works with pitchers. So I think... You know, we can look at the offense, and offense is obviously huge, but um, you know, the defense is is more than ha- I think more than fifty percent of the, the what you evaluate with catchers. Yeah, let's uh, off that. Let's segue to pitching for this team, right? So we we really exhaustedly uh, or exact, exhaustively uh, discuss the positives of this team. Starting pitching is is a concern, right, Jake? Like, you know, whether it's Colin McHugh, who I, I mean, when is this guy? If if he even returns to form, when is he just going to return to the team, right? And and then uh, you talked about the struggles for the back of the rotation. If if you're an Astros fan, how could you possibly have confidence that Morton, Musgrove, and Fires can be trusted either down the stretch of this season or you know God forbid any, any of those guys match up against an ace? Fires matched up. Who is it? Two, a few nights ago, Kluber. Kluber. Yeah. Kluber. It's like I mean, and obviously that's going to happen sometimes that your fifth guy is going to match up with the ace of another staff, but. Um, I was, I was using it to illustrate a point that, I mean, this team, it, it is the, the biggest weakness of this team is it's starting pitching depth and excellence. For sure, and and someone's going to get hurt. Multiple people are going to get hurt. They've only used six starters so far. They're gonna, that's me knocking on wood. They're going to use ten. Like, that's just a matter of what an MLB season is. So their depth is definitely an issue. Um, you know, even say fires, say one guy gets hurt. I don't even know who the next guy is. It's probably Brad Peacock and... He's been really good out of the bullpen, but his stuff is obviously playing up out of the bullpen. So I, I think there's definitely concern behind the top two. Uh, Morton's been up and down. He's kind of like a tightrope walker in these innings, uh, which is you know something he needs to be more efficient. I know he struck out 12 the other night. Um, yeah, and then Musgrove's been you know really up and down too. He has the, the four-run first inning in Tampa, and then he no-hit five innings the next five. So... Um, They've definitely, they're definitely, they're going to have to address starting pitching at the deadline. There's no question about that. So. I'm also not, per, I'm not persuaded that Lance McCullers is bona fide as a consistent number two starter. Or number, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, some writers were putting him as the dark horse Cy Young candidate this year. Yeah, it, people like to, you know, be the guy who looks smart when they pick a dark right, horse right. and he comes <laughs> out and. Um, yeah, I think Lance McCullers is really good, but he needs more consi- to be more consistent. And, yeah, and like it's it's weird to me that the two out of the five starts where he wasn't landing his breaking ball were on the road. Like it just, I don't know. And to to use a really bad cliche, but if you're a baseball fan, in a way you can't really articulate this any better, is that he 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 hasn't consistently figure out how to be like be a pitcher to to really be consistently pitching in games. Right? You know, it's the combining your natural gifts with you know what you what you learn from it like figuring out how to be consistent that is really what pitching is all about right like mastering the zone i think he has thrown a lot more strikes this year um especially in his home starts where he's been really good the key has been he's he's throwing fastballs in the the strike zone and around the corner so 
think he's improved in some respects in that area, but the games he struggled are the games where he's not his 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 devastating power curveball is not at its best. I also don't really know how this guy, because of his approach, um, you know, he wastes a lot. He does waste a lot of pitches, though, right? Like, how is this guy going to, if ever, become a starter that can carry a team into the like seventh or eighth consistently, right? I know that they're that the game has changed so much and that it is so bullpen heavy, but still, I, it, it does seem to me that the best teams at the when we get to September, they've got you know more than just one guy. That I mean, Cleveland didn't last year. Cleveland relied heavily on their bullpen outside of Kluber. And, of course, you saw in the World Series, they threw, what, Kluber three times? Yeah. No, I mean, but to answer your McCullers question, he's got to pitch to contact more and, and get ground ball outs early in counts. And I think in his home starts, he's done that better than he had in the past. Um, so he's he's his ERA at home is 183. His ERA on the road is over nine. Is is I mean, I, I know we talked about the home and road splits, but is, is that concerning or is it just not a big enough sample size? Well, you at look at point? his career, 41 regular season starts. I think it's two point something at home and five and a half on the road or 5.3 on the road. So I think that's reason for, for concern. Um, but, I mean, it, in terms of this season, two starts versus three starts, it's small sample size. Right. And, and we talked about kind of the health of the rotation, who comes in uh, if there's an injury. Uh, there's a guy right now, uh, McHugh, who's you know had shoulder issues this year, arm issues. Elbow, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but if you're looking at guys that could potentially move into that rotation, I want to ask about Devo. I mean, he's he's been absurd uh, with his you know long outings in the bullpen. I think he's averaging, what, 15 or 16 strikeouts per nine innings? I, mean, I, I know you're ahead with this, Austin. Yeah. I very foolishly asked Jake this question recently. Why is it, it's not foolish. Well, I I, I, <laughs> I, t- I texted Jake. I said, you know, considering that Davinsky has been so good, why don't they use him in rotation, right? Uh, and Jake, feel free to jump in on the explanation. But I, I have to say, when you, when you answered it to me, it did make me feel like, ah, all right, I'm a dummy. I mean, look at him in the – this was like a big story in spring training. Um, look at his, his three pitches, right? His fastball plays up out of the bullpen considerably. His, his slider is much better out of the bullpen than it was in the rotation. And when his fastball and slider are better, his changeup's better. So, like, his stuff just plays up out of the bullpen. Uh, he's more of a sprinter than a, than a marathon guy, uh, it seems like. And, and he's been so good in this role um, that there's no reason to take him out of it. I think he would have to be an above-average number four starter to provide more value out of the rotation than he's provided in his current role. I think he's providing... It's hard to tell because he's not starting, but he provides a ton of value in this role. And I was going to say, now that you know, Jake sort of definitively persuaded me of this with one <laughs> swift text, I would say, and then Jake, would, would, I'd be interested to know what you think about this. I could see a point in the season where actually he is the high leverage guy that Hinch goes to more frequently or, or most frequently compared with Gregerson and Giles. Well, he, he, he already has been. I like, Look at the other night. He... He faced 10 batters in Cleveland, and Hinch left him in to face Francisco Lindor twice. He could have brought in anyone to face him a second time, but he, he wants Stavinsky in that spot because, you know, he's been their best pitcher. He's been one of the best relievers in baseball for the last two years. So is he, is he the Astros version of Andrew Miller? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think every team's trying to find that guy now, and I think, but I think he was doing this, bef- like I saw one article recently that, insinuated Davinsky was born out of Andrew Miller. He was doing this last year, too. It's right. just people didn't 
pay attention because the Astros weren't really rele- as relevant. Somebody at this table should should write about that for the Houston Chronicle. It's, it won't be. <laughs> I mean, me, I, so. I feel like I write about Davinsky every two nights. I like that. I like this idea. I like this idea that as a I don't know what the right term is like almost as like a zeitgeist, right? Andrew Miller is now representative of not just like not of, of the trend, right? Sure. And that he is now his name is synonymous with this new role, right? And I like I just like that you smartly, you know, back yeah, I mean, up look at, that look at his he's been doing this. The end of the last year. I mean, he started the year as their long reliever. I think his first twelve appearances came in losses. But if you look mid season on, he, he was he used. was nasty. Yeah, and well he was he was the only reason his ERA was a, was even above whatever one was because of the four or five starts he made. He wasn't as good, which should tell you also answer your question about the, the rotation. And it's question. a completely different mentality also coming out of the bullpen. But he struggled in the spring when he started too. So yeah, so really quickly, first month, if you're putting a letter grade on the Astros, what do you do? Letter grade. A, it's gotta be an A. Fans are happy. you know why? Because fans are happy. Well the month first month's not over yet as we tape this. But Oh dear God, two more games Jake. left in the month of April. Or oh, what if they recording. lose both twelve to two? Um Well it would be against Musgrove and, and Keichel. Uh, Oh, okay, cool. I guess we'll be bad. Yeah. So that would that would be concerning if it's twelve to two. Whatever. No, All right, but, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an A because they had, I would say, high expectations, not you know, championship expectations. It's more like championship possibilities, right? Potential. I think they had those expectations, but realistically, from what you know, the outside thought, you know, this team doesn't make uh, stupid mistakes, right? And that goes into you know, like giving them an A, right? Like we can't fault them for being boneheaded. They don't have a guy that is severely disappointing fans, right? They don't have somebody who's contentious in the locker room. Just overall. I mean, they, they still have a question. I mean, left-handed relief is still a big question. The rotation is still a question. But I think what Keiko's done, I think what some the fact that Correa hasn't really hit yet, um, you know, Bregman hasn't really hit a whole lot yet, they're going to be pretty good. And the lineup isn't even clicking on all cylinders. I don't know if it ever will be one through nine at the same time. But... Um, I think the yeah, I'd say you can give him an A. Did you Austin? Do you did you get that call from Tim Kirkchen? Uh No, he's actually uh, just now walking into the studio. Guys, so good to be here. Uh, I just wanted to say that Nori Aoki is the only Japanese player to use a fork on a Tuesday. That's pretty good, Kirkchen, We appreciate it. God, yeah, thanks. If you if you have any crumbs to drop beneath this table, I'm just going to lay down here for a little while. It's just it's so cavernous and dark. <laughs> Please. All right, Tim Kirkshen, everyone, and of course, uh, we've got Hunter uh, Hunter Atkins and Jake Kaplan here in the studio. And guys, uh, Jake, you're covering the game Sunday. Hunter, you've been covering the last few nights. Uh, few. Let's go one, one, one. So one. two. Well, two but, today. But, but two today. By the time that people hear this podcast, which will be, be, be Sunday, Sunday. it'll be, be a couple. So right. It will be a couple. So, so, wait, so wait. what do you guys like in terms of coverage coming up? Like, what are you guys working on? Any any certain player profiles? Let me, let me like first that? jump in, and, and, and I just want to say that joking aside, Jake Kaplan is the Astros guy. Oh, of course. And, and no, Jake works his damn butt off, and yeah, it was very generous of you to use a colloquialism and say Hunter's been covering a few nights. No, the truth is that. Jake is covering this team inside and out and extensively, far more than I really ever could. And if fans want to know about the Astros at every moment, I, as far as I know, Jake doesn't sleep. So I get my eight hours. I just don't do anything else besides work <laughs> once I'm awake. <laughs> that explains why you were pinching yourself beneath the table as we were talking. Yeah, I'm not going to multitask. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not feeling so great right now. Uh, yeah, It's called no, love, I, Jake. It's very, That's what we feel. Very kind of you to say. Um, 
Yeah, follow follow Hunter's uh, Hunter's, my weird features. Hunter's non non final score up tweets on on Twitter. Oh my God, you are such a weird guy. No, I'm in that guy. Yeah, you didn't tweet the final score. (laughs) I didn't tweet the final score. Do you want to know why? I tell people to follow him, and then I look stupid. Yeah, let me tell you something. Anybody who wants to know the score of an Astros game already is subscribing so or using I, an app. that I'm saying they're already using an app that's going to update immediately as soon as the game's over. So why should people follow you? Well, first of all, great, great Corgi photos. Great Corgi photos. A lot of very good Dachshund gifts. Um, wrestling. I have hot wrestling takes. Um, I have opinions on food, Jake. So he's a very cultured man. Yeah, I'm like he's letting that New York pride show through. All right. So when I say <laughs> follow Hunter Atkins for updates for tonight's game, that's misleading. Definitely, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I won't do that. Fair anyway. point. So if you want to follow actual updates, uh, check out Jake on Twitter at Jake M Kaplan. Are we talking NFL draft at all? Like, yeah, I was just oh, about to I say forgot about that. And of course, Hunter Atkins thirty five. But really quickly, you're a Philly guy. Uh, and also, if, if you're a Rockets fan, go ahead and send Jake a Rockets shirt. Apparently, he doesn't have one. But Jake... Is that good for the Rockets? It is good for the Rockets, I think. If, if you know, your local Astros beat writer is supporting, I don't yeah. know. Jake is a diehard I'd Philly rather fan. get a Kawhi Leonard shirt, to be honest with you. But. Okay, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Give us your hot Philly takes. What, what am I... The, what I think about, the, what about the, the NFL draft? I, I think mean, the draft should be in Philly every year. <laughs> what do you think about Drew Pearson's comments? I thought it was great. I yeah, thought it was hilarious. Kind of riot, just like trolling everyone. It was great. It was... It was awesome. I think the whole thing's been great. Like, you know, every player that they had doing the third round picks gets booed for no reason, but it's just <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to watch. And uh, we'll have, of course, more on the NFL draft. Uh, that was all you had. You were so John excited about the NFL draft. Well, I didn't get to ask a question about like any just players. Just tell, tell, us, tell, us, tell us whatever your thoughts were and how they drafted and whether the Eagles, Eagles are going to turn around. Uh, yeah, I think in a few years. You know, a few like years. A couple years. Carson know. Wentz. Yeah, he's, he needs weapons. He needs weapons. And they got Alshon Jeffrey. We'll see if he stays healthy. But yeah, a couple of years will be good. Well, let's see what happens. Of course, Texans fans excited about Deshaun Watson uh, being taken in the first round. And I, I know personally I'm excited that the Texans actually did something with the quarterback position. Whether or not he pans out, that's a different question. But at least they're trying to make moves. And hopefully it turns out a little bit better than Brock Osweiler did. I do have a take. Browns had the best first round of anyone. Oh, yeah. Three picks. You also get the Texans' first round pick their, next year. Their new front office is really smart. I think, we gotta, I think we got to stop with the, oh, they're going to screw it up because it's the Browns' narrative because these guys just know what they're doing. And they also picked up a quarterback as well. Yeah, I don't know if he's good. Do you? He's a guy that some people suggested the Texans might take a look at. Who is this player? I apologize. Sean Kaiser. Kaiser from Notre, Notre Dame. Dame. He struggles. He's got all the intangibles in terms of like size, build, speed. His arm strength, but his accuracy is, I don't know, I think he completed like 50 to 55% of his passes last year in I don't college. Know. That's not that great. I don't know if there's a good quarterback in this draft. I, Hot take. I don't know. Jake Kaplan. I feel fair. like I say that every year, but like, I mean, I think if anyone's going to pan out, Watson has the best chance, but Trubisky doesn't do it for me. The other guys, who was the other guy who got taken in the first round? Pat Mahomes, Texas. Yeah, he doesn't really do it for me. So I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell, and hopefully the Astros, or not the Astros, uh, hopefully the Texans made the right decision. But again, if you want to follow the Astros uh, on social media, just go ahead and check out Jake M. Kaplan. And uh, if you want to learn about corgis and food or anything like that, and also WWE, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm check like, out Hunter Atkinson. I was just say, I'm like a combination. Ugh, I'm like a, uh, ugh, <laughs> wrestling. Have a friggin' life, Jake. How about, how about you let a one ray of sunshine into your dark, morbid world? You, <laughs> yeah, was, you cantankerous just, young man. I'm sorry. I was just catching up on the leftovers. That's why I'm so morbid right now. 
Have you ever watched that show? It's a uh, good show, uh, HBO. Check it out. Huh? Very good show, but very depressing. No, I'm too busy watching the Food Network. Truth be told, I'm like I'm like a combination between Lee Jenkins and Ina Garden. Like those are you know that's where I want to be. That's my Venn diagram in life. So I'll leave Astros. <laughs> Everyone fans wants that. to be Lee Jenkins and Ina Garden. I don't know who that is. Oh, Jake. Well, apparently, uh, Jake and Hunter have a lot to talk about after <laughs> this podcast. But uh, Jake, Hunter, appreciate you guys stopping by the studio. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Closing time. Absolutely jam-packed show for the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. Thanks to John McClain from the Houston Chronicle, Brian Curtis of The Ringer, and of course, Jake Kaplan of the Houston Chronicle for joining us in studio this week. Uh, We talked everything. We talked Astros. We talked Texans. Uh, You know, the big news stories of the week that happened uh, at ESPN that kind of shook up the sports media world. And uh, we'll have a lot more implications uh, as we see kind of what transpires over the next month or two to see where some of those uh, reporters end up landing. And it'll be interesting also uh, to keep, uh, you know, kind of a watch on Adrian Wojnarowski of The Vertical. Of course, Yahoo is struggling financially. So with ESPN laying off several of their NBA reporters, uh, does ESPN make a, a move and potentially uh, poach Woj from Yahoo? That's something to kind of look forward to. But uh, if you're a Texans fan, you've got to be excited by Deshaun Watson. Uh, it looks right now that Tom Savage is going to be the starting quarterback, but injury concerns have always been his M.O. the last three seasons. So we'll see if he can stay healthy. And if he's not healthy, what happens with the quarterback situation then? Do the Texans insert uh, Brandon Whedon into the starting lineup, or do they uh, turn over the reins to Deshaun Watson? And so it's going to be interesting to follow the Texans here during OTAs and uh, off-season workouts to see how we kind of adjust to learning the NFL system. He's going to have to learn to make more reads. And as uh, John McClain said, Bill O'Brien's system requires a lot of effort for quarterbacks to learn. You look at the last three seasons, it's been a new quarterback coming in here and just learning the system in one offseason. So I think there's room for encouragement uh, with Tom Savage being the system. This is his fourth year under Bill O'Brien. So I think you have to be optimistic with what he can provide on the field. Now, of course, injury concerns, whether or not he can stay healthy, that's a completely different animal. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to see. So thanks to John for joining us. Also, Astros 16 and 9 through the month of April currently in first place in the AL West they leave the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim by three games and I think you've got to be encouraged uh, by what they provided and what they've shown you that first month of the season and of course they're not clicking on all cylinders yet in offense Carlos Correa has not really turned it on yet he had a great game on Saturday or I'm sorry on Sunday but we'll see what he can do uh, here in the next few months you, you know that he's going to turn it on at some point and when he does and that offense is clicking on all cylinders It's going to be a fun time to watch baseball here in Houston. Uh, But the one story that we really didn't talk about this week, and of course, we provided the bonus episode last week, uh, recording and uh, right after the Rockets knocked off Oklahoma City in the first round of the playoffs. But uh, the Rockets have a big series starting Monday night against the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Spurs are obviously favored in the series, but we'll see if uh, James Harden and the Rockets can get things going, especially from the three-point line, and uh, contend with San Antonio. Of course, the Spurs took three out of four games in the regular season, and uh, we'll see what happens. It's It should be a fun series. I would like to see it go six or seven games. Right now, I'm leaning toward picking the Spurs, and I think the Spurs are going to win the series, but who knows? Maybe the Rockets can surprise and uh, have a date with Golden State, and as Hunter has alluded to multiple times, the Rockets are probably the only team with a puncher's chance in the West 
take on Golden State. So we'll see if that transpires. But uh, it was a great episode today. And, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate, of course, Jake Kaplan stopping by studio, John McClain for joining us on the phone line, and, of course, Brian Curtis from The Ringer. And if you like the content that we provided you this week, uh, we post a lot of stuff on social media throughout the week. So just go ahead and search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, of course, YouTube. And uh, follow our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post each episode there. Uh, and it gets pushed straight to your inbox. That's the best way to find us. But uh, thanks again to everyone for joining us. And on behalf of my co-host, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins, my name is Austin Staten, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 